Welcome back, everyone. Great to be with you. And thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. And on today's show, we are going to do part two of our masterclass on mental health. Today, we're going to speak to Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe, who will talk to us about maintaining calm within stormy conditions. Dr. Marie Helene Peltier on burnout and Riaz Megji on the human connection. All critical factors in maintaining our mental health. And again, when we interview different experts on the same topic, the magic is that patterns emerge, consistencies emerge, and we discover the deeper truths that can inform how we move forwards with our lives. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. The last masterclass on mental health was huge. I imagine that this one will be as well. Uh, this is a topic that is of great concern to so many people, so could not be more excited to bring you this deep dive into mental health with Riaz Megji, Dr. Robin Henley Defoe, and Dr. Maria Len Peltier. Enjoy. Riaz, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Pumped to be with you, Greg. Thank you. All right. So what does your day-to-day work look like? Like, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you do, super interested by the impact you're trying to have in the world. So what is uh, what does your day-to-day work look like? I've shifted things immensely going from the day used to look like waking up at 4 a.m. and then doing a live TV morning show and then working out, napping, taking care of my kid, and then trying to keep my sanity. (laughs) Now, shifting into this remote work setup, uh, I really appreciate starting the day with a 10 to 20 minute meditation. And I've found what's really helped me in this space when it it can be really overwhelming is practicing mindfulness because the culture of distraction that we're living in is difficult to cut through. And I struggle with this because I would have guilt from the idea of just taking a moment to do nothing. And I've been trying to just work through that. And I found starting the day with 10 to 20 minutes of mindfulness is great. My son will wake up, he's just over two years old, we'll have a a good two hours with him, drop him off at daycare. And then the day really in this virtual space is kind of unpredictable. Like right now, given this message of every conversation counts that I'm sharing, half of the days are spent on Zoom calls, doing podcasts like this, interview opportunities to really share the message on human connection. And then when the interviews aren't happening, I'm just focusing on writing continuously writing uh, just to share more resources to, to help people through this time. Amazing. So many questions are coming from that, but how did you get into meditation? Why do you find it helpful in the morning? And what does that practice look like? I'm obsessed as well. Um, I'm in around 20 minutes. Um, I find morning is great. I'm loving it right after any workouts that I potentially do, but it has radically transformed my life. And like 80 to 90% of the people on this podcast have some sort of a meditation practice. So I'm always interested, like, what, how'd you get into it? What exactly are you doing? What are the benefits that you're seeing? The, the big motivation of getting into it was trying to find a purposeful gratitude practice. And some of the research I was really looking at pandemic specific was that if we start our days intentionally looking at three things we're grateful for, and if you're able to do that for 21 days straight, that leads to a more optimistic mindset for up to six months. And I personally was finding myself overwhelmed, 
constantly distracted, and as I mentioned, guilty, which is doing nothing. And there was there was a great quote I came across in the spaces. I was trying to navigate how to balance my day better by Tim Ferriss, and he was saying busyness can be a form of laziness because you're just constantly distracting yourself. And then I just made the conscious decision. I want to start my day in a way where I'm clearing my my mind. I'll set my goals the night before of what I want to accomplish, but I want to start my day in a calm way because for years I would start my day flooring the gas pedal, blowing out my adrenal glands, being in front of the camera, and I just wanted to do it differently. So I'm really working past the, uh, the first 10 minutes. The mind is just whipping around. I'm trying to get to the 20-minute mark. My goal by the end of the year is to do this practice for 45 minutes straight. Because when I used to do this years ago, I found by the 30-minute mark, that's when my mind was calm. And that release, uh, I want to get back to that because I feel like that will help me be more productive in those those moments that uh, I'm writing or I am on. And it's just about wanting to find more balance. Yeah, I love it. And I will just want to highlight something. 20 minutes three things that you're grateful for, for 21 days, and the effects last for up to six months. An optimistic mindset of up to six months, yeah. And one of the habits in the Every Conversation Counts book was really fostering a culture of appreciation and gratitude. And we've all heard about a practice of gratitude, how it can serve us, what are you most grateful for? But when I looked at some of the science, when if somebody's you know, kind of thinking, oh, gratitude, that's, that's the woo-woo stuff. Well, if you look at the science of what that can do for us, especially right now, I'll, I'll take that practice if, if that can help keep me in, in, a, in a positive mind mindset. Love it. What is some of the science um, that you're seeing that you're in addition to increasing optimism? I've seen things like reduced incidence of cardiovascular disease, impacts upon mental health. Like it's quite profound. And when I first came across it, I admittedly was like, okay, this is full on like woo woo. I just got to sit here and like think about things I'm grateful for. And that's actually going to, and it, and, However, now that I'm practicing this, it's unbelievable the shift that it makes. And I've really noticed it in my 11-year-old daughter. Like when she's in a bad place and we sit down and do gratitude journaling, the first couple things that she'll write are just brutal. But then I'm like, well, what about, you know, and it literally becomes anything. And then she shifts. And by the end of it, she's smiling. So I'm super interested in like the science behind this and, and anything that you've found and what you've written in the in the Every Conversation Counts book, because it's just, you know, I think it's something everyone can do. It's so easy and the impacts are real. Well, one of the the key practices, and this, this was, a, Greg, this was a mistake I would make. In a busy day, I would get overwhelmed. And then I tell my wife, um, I have to do this. Uh, I've got to go do this event. And I was operating under a mindset you know, and I changed this a couple of years ago after a particular conversation. I was operating under a mindset of obligation versus opportunity. And there was a gentleman by the name of Chris who who lives on the downtown east side in Vancouver. And in an interview on breakfast television, he came on and talked about a project, a legacy project in Vancouver called the I Get To Legacy Project. And the whole Wayhouse brought him in. Uh, he he kind of lost his way in life. And for a year, they had invited him down for, for meals, and he just felt alienated. He was alienating himself, feeling like he didn't he, he didn't deserve it. He didn't have that, that self-worth. And through consistency, he finally felt a sense of belonging with this group, and he appreciated the mindset they all had of, I get to have this breakfast. I get to be around you. And when he said those three words to me, 
it resonated because I was operating under that obligation of I have to versus I get to. And when I shifted that, that helped when the unpredictable hits. I mean, uh, we have a, a just over two-year-old at home. And I mean, you've got kids. You know how, how chaotic things can it's be. insane. Instead of saying, oh, no, we have to do this, that I get to simple shift on a daily basis has reminded me of, I get to be a parent, I get to watch his evolution, our son Nico, and that's really helped me stay grounded, stay grateful, and stay present in every single moment and experience, good and bad, because when it's good, it's easy. When it's bad, that just shows up who you really are. Totally. And I love that shift from... I have to do this to, I get to do this. It's so cool because it's from being forced to do something into like, I have this opportunity. I love that idea of obligation versus opportunity. And I'd love for you to sort of lean into and dig into the the final thing that you said, which is so fascinating, which is that when it's easy, it's no problem, but it's when it's hard that this actually makes a difference. And, uh, that's the key, right? It's not, we don't, it, it's easy to do this stuff when everything's going well. Yeah. It's hard when things are breaking down and you're exhausted and you're still in this crazy pandemic that we're in. It's going to on, on and on and on. So that can you expand upon that a little bit? Just cause I think it's super interesting. Yeah. That, that piece, I mean, one of the questions I always love asking if I'm trying to connect with someone is really looking at their grace under fire moments of, I, I remember it was uh, Mark Shapiro, president of the blue Jays. Uh, when he first got the job, we sat down for the Every Conversation Counts YouTube series. And I said, Mark, you know, why did you want to leave the Cleveland Indians? And he just said, you know, I felt I did everything that, that I could. I just wanted to start fresh and, and do something different. And then when you do that as a leader, then you have the opportunity to build a new team around you. And I asked Mark, well, what's the question you asked to know that's the right teammate that you want to work with? And he said, I asked them, tell me about the time. A, a time where you had to deal with adversity and how you showed up and how you discovered who you really are. And that to me is, is such a valuable question because think about the adversity we have all faced during the pandemic, the feelings of uncertainty that became our universal commonality and how we showed up. What did we do? Did, did we complain or did, did we find a way to navigate through our circumstances and understand what the lesson uh, of this could be because that's empowering. I, I mean, listen, I've had, I've had down days and I've been more accepting of the days where, you know, I just feel like I'm in the dumps. I'm not going to reject that anymore. I'm just going to say today is an off day. That is okay. But how are we going to rebound? What's the framework? What's the path? And how do I surround myself with the right people that can encourage me, but still keep me accountable of the destination I want to get to? How do we do... <laughs> We had some interesting moments this week in my family. There was a full-on meltdown around homeschooling, mm. um, which is fine. We accept it. It's not easy, right? And um, it's been going on for a long time now. We've all been at home, and it's not it's not easy. So, the, but Judith, my wife, has this incredible ability to rebound from these these moments. I, I look at it with wonder and incredible because I, I tried teaching. Uh, helping out with this whole homeschooling thing for like 15 minutes and it immediately imploded and everyone, including my kids, it's like, you just need to go back to work, dad. And I was like, cool, <laughs> I'm going to go to a podcast with Riaz. I'll see you guys later. Um, but um, the, the my question is like, how can we go from this 
okay, things are not going all that well today. No big deal. We're going to accept that, which is hard for us because we put so much pressure on ourselves to just keep moving forwards and, you know, keep trying to, or, or have all these expectations about what's supposed to be going on. How do we go from difficulty to acceptance to rebound? I'm just curious about that. If you have any processes that you've used or mindsets that you've adopted that seem to help with that. My starting point for that framework would be to ask myself the question, what is my relationship with myself right now? We all talk about building external relationships, but the relationship with myself of uh, how am I, what are the expectations that I'm putting on myself? Like I felt like I was letting myself down by, by you know, on those down days doing nothing. And I'm like, oh, I'm failing here. But that really, answering that question and taking inventory and writing about that is, okay, well, what do we want to accomplish overall? And one of the key questions during the pandemic that constantly comes up is someone could ask you, hey, Greg, you know, how, how are you coping? How are you dealing with the pandemic? The question I love to ask right now is, how are you taking care of yourself? Mm-hmm. That's the priority to, to answer, uh, getting to that space of it's difficult, I'm going to rebound. Because if we're recharging and if that's a meditative practice, amazing. If that's exercise and releasing the endorphins, fantastic. But if we're, if we're taking care of ourselves with realistic expectations, recharging our batteries, and being forgiving of our mistakes where they're learning opportunities, not failures, that relationship, that self-talk, that self-guidance is a really important part of the process of what we can project and, and connect with externally. I love it. And that question about what's my relationship with myself is a really, really interesting one. In this moment, What's my relationship with myself? It's a powerful question. Yeah, I mean, it's a powerful internal one. And if you're feeling courageous and trustworthy with the social circle you have, one of the exercises me and my wife did or have been doing with ourselves and people in our lives of asking people that you trust, what is it like being on the other side of me? (laughs) I'm afraid to ask that question. (laughs) You go to Judith and you ask her that, Greg, you see what happens. Oh, no. And, And that that will identify blind spots. And, and obviously that, that is a tough question to ask if you're not ready for the answer. But yeah. if, you, if you have a trusted circle and the intention is pure that you want to grow and you want to make sure you're serving the people around you, hearing that answer uh, can be less about criticism, but more just about calling each other up and saying, I love when you do this, but here's you know a roadblock for us. What, what if we did it differently? And I think if we have the courage to ask those questions, you know, so some big changes could happen. Yeah, I agree. It's an incredibly powerful mindset, right? And especially if you're open to listening when you get those responses, that's the key thing. Like listen with no agenda, um, no defense, no um, justification, no rationale, like no excuses, right? Like that's one of the things we used to work on in sports was the no excuses mindset and the no, no grief. Like you don't give anyone grief and you don't make no excuses and you just learn to listen really well. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. When you talk about listening, one of the habits in, in the book talks about listening without distraction. And Greg, I was blown away by some of the research. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, social psychologist, Timothy Wilson, did this study years ago when a control study looking at men and women and how distracted they really were, he found 67% of men and 25% of women would rather receive an electric shock than sit alone with their own thoughts for 15 minutes. 
And that study, uh, I, I know it was years ago, that that is such a, a profound example of how we struggle with the relationship with ourselves. We struggle with listening to ourselves. But as a baseline, if we can't listen to ourselves, how do we give somebody our undivided attention? 100%. One of the interesting things I challenge people to do is to sit alone with yourself with no phone, nothing. Don't move. You can sit on the floor. You can sit on a chair. It doesn't matter. But just can you, can you sit with yourself for 20 minutes? And when I say that in sessions, people just like it, the responses are absolutely incredible. But it's a very interesting test. Like, can you sit with yourself and your own thoughts for 20 minutes? And what happens in that 20 minutes can be very interesting. That that 20 minute exercise, I, I believe, is so valuable for all of us. And then the, the ability of if people are doing that to ask them, what did you learn in those 20 minutes? Yeah. Uh, there would not be one universal answer. Everyone would probably have some element of distraction, discovery, a reflection that could, could, could be very powerful if you're doing that every single day. Yeah, very cool. When the other, the other thing, the extension of that is, can you sit for, but with yourself for 20 minutes and be joyful and happy? That's another sort of an extension of that. And if you like, what are the, like, what, if you can't, or you're struggling with that, then that might be something to lean into and to explore. Yeah. Or if you're successful, you can lean into it and explore that even further. Well, that's great because it gives it more intention of the 20 minutes for the the A-type goal, goal seekers out there of, what am I going to do? What am I going to accomplish in 20 minutes? You have an intention of stay joyful and happy. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Um, you mentioned earlier also about connection. And early on, we ta- we sort of came up connection to others. But a lot of this conversation is connection to yourself. I'm just curious more about your thoughts on human connection, especially in the context of what's happening in the world right now in 2021, where so much of that human connection has been eliminated. We're not allowed to, or you've got a mask on, or you're six feet apart and you can't hug people. Like, how is that playing out in your mind? Like, what are you learning? What are you thinking about? What can we do? So many thoughts on this. The pandemic. I believe that this pandemic, or any pandemic, it doesn't change your identity, it reveals it. And the great reveal was the reminder that human connection, this isn't an, just an option. Human connection is a necessity, yeah. not for us just to thrive, but for us to survive. And the notion of loneliness, uh, which is the area that I've been researching for years, this was a huge problem pre-COVID that few people talked about. Yeah, And, and it's because of the stigma. There's shame and embarrassment for someone to sit up and say, I've got nobody to talk to. And now those conversations of convenience, whether it's us at the water cooler, Greg, maybe seeing somebody in the hallway, stopping into somebody's office to say hello, those were stripped away. And then the main topic that everybody is thinking about is their psychological struggle with how this isolation, this self-isolation has impacted us. Yeah, The pandemic has allowed us to maybe a silver lining is to be more open about it, that you don't have to fear it because everybody's experiencing some degree of it. That's valuable that when we're talking about it. And now I believe that people are, are, are much more intentional 
uh, with how they connect and have moved out of the autopilot mode of constant movement, constant distraction. How's your day? What are we doing this weekend? Uh, Are the kids okay? Have they eaten? It's like, bang, that's stripped away. Now it's like, how are you seriously doing? Like, are you okay? (laughs) Are you you okay? So we've gone from this like super, very superficial connection to many people. All of that is now taken away. And when we get a chance to get on any sort of a connection opportunity, it literally is like, hey, man, how are you doing right now? Or like, hey, how are you doing right now? Like, are you okay? And that's a legit question to ask where it probably wasn't a year ago. Yeah, and and I've found like many of the questions, this was a critical mistake I would make early on in my career when I would interview people. I, I would make a list of questions and then if I was able to go through five to seven minutes on live television and get through that list, I would say, check, that was a success. Mm. But I was thinking about myself and I was thinking about my questions. And the more time that would go by, I would find the most powerful conversations and connections that were built really came from courageous personal reveals. And when I would go into the green room, one of the first questions I would ask people is, so what's on your mind? And right. get out of the way because over preparing with all the research, that would give me confidence. Yeah. But true connection comes from the listening piece we've talked about, but the willingness to improvise and prioritize that person's priorities. And I feel like many people uh, are, are starting to open up about what really is on their mind right now. And I hope that trend continues because. The conversation right now has been about a pandemic and a virus and a vaccine. We both know as we shift out of this, this conversation is going to be about mental health yeah. and, and, and how we rebound and, and are just open with, with our personal struggles. How do we crap? First of all, like you're talking about TV interviews, and I, I've done a lot of them mostly as someone who was interviewed due to what I, you know, working at the Olympics and stuff like that. And, but I've made deep friendships with some of the people that have interviewed me over the years. And it's amazing that those deep friendships have occurred because quite often I will walk in, have three minutes during commercial break to chat, do my five minute interview, and then I'm out there and they're already on to the next question. But I feel like I know these people, we've got good connection. And it's interesting because when we talk about ourselves in those interviews and the interviewer reveals, hey, Greg, yeah, no, I'm struggling with this as well. What do you think? We get into this amazing conversation. You're right. We get beyond the, pre, the pre-crafted, the scripted questions into an actual connected conversation. So I'm wondering if that, that vulnerability, that reveal, that, that, that interest is, is something that might help people to deepen connections right now. Massive. It's, it's, it's bang on of, uh, of, commonality with the struggle. And there was a moment years ago, the former publisher of Success Magazine, Darren Hardy, who's a terrific coach to CEOs, uh, I saw him speak in Whistler. And the organizer of the event gave me 20 minutes with Darren. And Darren's interviewed some of the greats out there. He studied like Diane Sawyer, Oprah, like all of them, Larry King. And I said to Darren, I'm like, so what's your secret? If you're going to interview someone or try and connect with them, what do you do? What do you do to break through the barrier and essentially make that small talk bigger? And he said two words, man, go first. And I I paused and I thought, okay, go first. I'm like, so tell me about that. And he said, well, if I want someone to open up about their personal struggle, 
I'm going to go first and tell them about how sometimes I struggle with my wife. And I'm going to show them, I'm going to go first and say, I trust you. I'm going to reveal this and create that space of psychological safety so that other person can say, oh, okay, I can trust Greg. Greg just gave me that piece. This is a safe space to share. And then the other point, when I was talking to Darren, one of the things as an interviewer uh, I, I was guilty of for years was just focusing on the information. Mm. And if we want to move somebody, you know this as you speak too, Greg, like the emotion, less info, more emotion. Yeah. What are the questions we can ask to elicit positive emotion? And the late, great uh, Gordon Livingston, the psychiatrist, he had this great idea of what the happiness equation looks like for people, where he said the happiest people, if you have no context of the person in front of you, you, you didn't have time to research them, but they're in front of you and you know this is an important person to connect with. He said the happiest people have something to do, they have someone to love, and they have something to look forward to. And if you have no context... Explore that emotion with the person in front of you and follow the lead they give you and watch what happens. And it's brilliant. It will unlock people and they'll be grateful that you know you have that type of empathetic curiosity. Hey Doc, welcome back. Thank you so much, Dr. Greg. It's so good to be here today. All right. So very curious about what you've been up to lately. Obviously, you've been on the show before, so people uh can go back and get the origin story, but super interested in where you're at right now, how are you managing in this crazy time and and, and what's what's happening? Uh, awesome. Thank you for having me back. Uh, it's great to be here. So what's going on? I think I'm in the same boat as, as everyone else as we are trying to stick handle and navigate what our new days look like. So right now I'm working remotely from the university still, which is going extremely well part-time, uh, trying to support students as they come to terms with what this new learning landscape looks like. And, and again, still working with groups all around the world, supporting authentic resiliency and wellness. And what I'm really encouraged about right now, Dr. Greg, is industry who rarely talk about resiliency and wellness, they are asking some great questions. And so I'm really encouraged by a lot of the groups that I'm working for, who traditionally would never have a resiliency wellness person come in to talk to their group, but they are onboarding to this area because it's so beneficial to their teams right now. And people need support. Right now, people are having a hard time. Yeah, the burnout rates are really um, challenging and extraordinarily problematic at the moment. So what are some of the questions people are asking? So people are asking good questions about, again, about that burnout piece. But you know what I've observed in my work that's a bit different than other folks, I think, right now is I'm seeing not only burnout rate soaring, I'm seeing compassion fatigue soaring in non-traditional areas where we wouldn't usually expect to see compassion fatigue. And it's interesting because burnout and compassion fatigue are actually different. Neither of them are a diagnosis, but each of them have their own symptomology that we look at. Burnout is you're depleted, like your gas tank is empty and you just have no go. Whereas compassion fatigue, it's a very peculiar set of circumstances. And I love how Dr. Figley refers to compassion fatigue as the cost of caring. It's when you care so deeply 
And whether that be our leaders who are caring about their teams and their community, or whether it be, you know, parent worried about their little ones, uh, all of this compassion fatigue is really giving us a sense of depletion on a psychological level, which is starting to impact our psychological safety. So that's something that I think a lot of folks um, could, could have some conversations about. So compassion, so compassion fatigue is the cost of caring. Mm -hmm. Is there empathy is there fatigue empathy as well? Is that the same thing? or is Definitely that's kind of embedded with it where all of a sudden we, um, we start becoming a bit mistrusting, right? Like we don't really trust. We're like, really, is it that bad? Like we start to kind of rationalize other person's experiences versus authentically holding space for them to say, yeah, this is a big deal. Like I'm validating, I'm acknowledging you. We start to get to this, like, oh, everybody has it worse or people have it worse. Like we start to get that little bit of cynicism. We start to see creep in. The other thing is that people really just feel lost. You know, their whole life, they've been, uh, have achieved this sense of purpose-filledness by being of service to others, right? They show up, they respond, they care. And now all of a sudden they're having this like identity shift where it's just like, oh my gosh, like I had one very kind person say to me like, Robin, like, I just don't really like people anymore. Um, I want to spend time with my dog. Um, and again, that's nothing wrong with people or wanting to spend time with your dog. It's just the fact that like the human species are becoming so bothersome right now. And that's actually a, tr uh, you know, a telltale sign that somebody's hitting some compassion fatigue. That's super that's interesting. Super interesting. I'm also very curious about psychological fatigue and mm -hmm. how that relates to psychological safety. So if we're burned out, if we're depleted, which I know that so many people are feeling right now, that then leads into us maybe reacting instead of responding, yes. snapping where we otherwise wouldn't, tempers become short, maybe you say something that you regret. I certainly, you know, can identify with that a little bit. And you know, I got on a call with a client a little while ago and I know that I was a little bit, I just betrayed some frustrations, which I would normally in a million years never do. But I certainly, you know, and in the hindsight, I was like, well, that was unusual. I wonder what happened with that, what happened there. So anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. So what we, we start to see is like, we only have so much cognitive load, you know, like there's only so much we can think about, worry about, care about, like we have limits and that doesn't mean we're not strong, capable people or resilient people. It just, we need to know that there is an outer fray of our emotional and mental and spiritual health, right? Like there is limits to what we can handle. And what I encourage people to think about is that like use some of those micro moments like you just described, use that as data. Like instead of holding shame or guilt or like, oh my gosh, I have to do huge amounts of relationship repair there, like literally practice some self-compassion and be like, okay, you know what, that's data. That tells me I am running on empty or I'm depleted. I need to do some active recovery. And what I often let people know, because I hear people all the time say to me, Dr. Greg, they say, oh my gosh, I'm, oh, I need a break. Robin, I'm done. I'm spent. You know what? It's not always your employer. It's not your system of where you work. Um, we, we really have an accountability piece where we have to do the work to make sure we don't get there. And so many people are, I think, really suspending responsibility that other people are supposed to make our jobs, our places of work. They're supposed to make them these really accessible spots that people aren't going to get burned out. Each and every one of us, if you want to maintain excellence, 
you have to be the captain of that. No EAP program, no structure is going to solve all of this for anyone. And the people who are building an active recovery, who are really thinking about systems for repair, those are the folks that are actually navigating this quite readily. That term, quote unquote, I'm done. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that in the last few weeks. People are just like, I am, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm out. Unfortunately, we can't just be out. We're not through this era just yet. And I think it's going to be a, a while before we are globally for sure. But if we're feeling depleted, if we're feeling I'm done, how do we recharge the batteries? How do we practice that self-compassion so that we can elevate our energy, be resilient, bounce back? You know, what are some of these tactics that people can put into place to help them in help themselves in this time when we're feeling a little run down? Yeah, great question. What I always let folks know on this one is like minimize collateral damage, like stop what you are doing. If you have said like, oh, I'm done. And then you go email your team or you're like, oh, I'm so done. And then you go have a conversation with your partner, like stop, like literally stop minimize the blast radius because that is what's getting folks into trouble. It's the fact that they're going into overtime when they shouldn't be there. Like you should be looking at your coach and say like, pull me right now. I am not your star player. And there's nothing wrong with that. So minimize collateral damage. What I encourage people, we don't need a full week off. We wouldn't even know what to do with ourselves when you're high performers. What we need is just a wee break to suspend that responsibility. Like we literally have to stop making decisions. We need a rest from being productive all the time. And I really encourage people to really actually just pause, take a day off or an afternoon off or even an hour, go outside, get some blood flowing, get some movement into your day. It doesn't have to be like wild risk-taking extreme sports, Dr. Greg. Just mm-hmm. saying, I what? saw some of your Instagram posts where I was like, that looks about. dangerous. Um, so it doesn't have to be that extreme. It literally could just be going out, running some errands, doing some light work, and then show up and re-engage. So minimize the blast radius. Think about how do I suspend responsibility, do some light work, do some movement, and then get back in strong and show back up for the people that are counting on you. I really like it. And that leads me into... Um, by the way, I, ice climbing is not that dangerous for the record. <laughs> um, <laughs> from Ontario, so... <laughs> it looks extremely dangerous, Dr. It's Craig. From where dangerous. I'm sitting in Ontario, it does look a wee bit risky. See, what I like about doing those sorts of activities, though, and also endurance sports for me is that it helps my mind to stop working because yes. when I'm in that state, when I'm climbing with ice axes and crampons up a vertical wall of ice that's a couple hundred feet high, you literally can't think about anything else, right? So you're pretty focused as well as you're, you're, it's hard and you're managing cold and all those other sorts of things. Fortunately, I was with an incredible guide. Um, my, my, you know, my friend Leela, who's one of the best mountain guides in, on the planet. So I was, I, I felt safe. I know that I was safe, but it was still hard, but it helps me to bring my attention back into the present moment. Same with sort of long, runs or swimming like i use those sorts of activities to clear my mind and bring myself back into the present moment which is why i like doing that but it doesn't necessarily have to be climbing ice it can be going for a walk in the park it can be 
you know, sitting on the Peloton bike for an hour or 20 minutes or five minutes, whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. I think there's many different ways of taking a break. And the key thing is, I guess, giving yourself permission to take those breaks. Absolutely. And scheduling it when you don't need it. I think that's the big takeaway is people wait until they're depleted and then they're like, oh, I'm done or I'm, you know, I have nothing left. What you really want to do is be proactive about those breaks, like preload your self-care. If you know you're going to have a really busy day, then get your exercise and your walking or your movement practice, get that done first thing in the morning. Like I always think if we lean into systems like, oh gosh, look at my calendar bam, I got to get this done first thing. And that wee bit of discipline to get it done first thing, you can then just ride out the energy. And then when the day is done, then you just sign off, right? Then you enjoy your favorite shows, you read your book, you know, you just be able to just recover in a low stakes way versus trying to do all your damage control at the end of the day, because we just don't have anything left to do it at that point. So preloading it, I think is really important and take the breaks before you actually need them. That's going to be the, I think that's really the final frontier with life with work balance is learning what's our pace and how do we set that pace? Know when we're going to need that recovery before we deplete ourselves to nothing. That's super interesting. So you're pre-planning your workouts, pre-planning your nutrition, pre-planning your meditation, pre-planning your breaks, like actually structural structuring that into, you could almost think about putting that into your calendar. Yes. Because what, what's in your calendar betrays your priorities, right? And if there's none of that in your calendar, then you can probably, you know, all sorts of things are going to get in the way and you get exhausted, you get burned out and you end up completely depleted. That's super interesting. And from a psychological perspective, why this is such a gem when it comes to high performance is I want you to be like in the middle of doing your project. So let's say you're writing something, you're, you're doing something creative, like something that really is something you're passionate about doing. I want you to actually take a break before you need to while you still have ideas, because usually what happens is people take breaks when they are done, like in terms of they don't know what to say next. They don't know what their next right move is. So they actually leave it when they're in this lull. They're in a valley. I want you to leave it when you're just like, oh, I'm so excited because I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And then step away while you still have good ideas and good energy do a wee bit of active recovery. And again, we're talking about micro moments, right? So some stretching, grab your water, maybe grab a snack, refuel, and then come back while you still are on a train of thought. Again, don't wait till you're in the valley to take a break because that's going to lead to so much procrastination behavior when you come back because you don't even know what to do next. So you want, and I always talk to my students and people I'm coaching, you want to leave and take a break when you're still hungry, whatever that looks like for the task that you're doing. Don't wait till you have nothing else to say. Maria Len, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to be, to be here, Greg. So we already established you're in Vancouver. That's cool. Very close to where I want to go back to sooner rather than later. But tell us how uh, about your origin story. How did you end up doing what you're, in, what you're into? How did you develop your incredible career? Just fascinated by, by, your, by your trajectory to get to where you're at today. Followed my nose, mostly. <laughs> That's what I'm going to start with. Um, so, yeah, I started the, in the psychology in Quebec, where I'm from. And, and then early in my career, I had the chance to work in a very remote uh, northern town because Nick, my husband, who's still my husband, uh, <laughs> is in mining. Uh, and now he does finance mining, but he used to be mining, mining. And so, therefore, we moved to a mining town. And what I realized over there 
was how hard it was to uh, connect with experts in various fields because you were very far from um, a lot of expertise. So then became interested in telehealth, and this is now 25 years ago. And so moved to BC to attend UBC and do my doctoral studies in telehealth. So providing psychotherapy via video conferencing, uh, which at the time I had to explain every single time because everyone was like, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, Greg, you, you, you have a PhD too. So, you know, when you do research and someone tells you this is an ambitious project, I thought my first language being French, that it was a compliment. And I was like, yeah, I'm bold. I'm going to do this. Now I know it actually means, are you out of your mind? This is yeah. not going to work. This is a bad it's idea. a warning. It's like, stop. You're doing too yeah. much. You don't need to do all of that. It's too much. You're crazy. Don't do that. But whatever. Carry on. Yeah. <laughs> all versions of this. Exactly. But, uh, you know, in my uh, ignorance at the time, I thought, hey, yeah, thanks. That's great. So anyway, that's what I did. And But as I was doing this type of research, it required a lot of funding, a lot of um, support because I was doing a treatment study looking at cognitive behavior therapy for social anxiety disorder via video conferencing. So it required, and I was using manualized treatments. Um, and so it required exposure and exposure to always the same people. All this to say that a lot of management was involved in doing this. And I realized uh, that I really enjoyed that. So decided that um, as I kept going with my career, I would um, do an MBA, but do it part-time to make sure that I was not just going to be the girl who goes to school and uh, started doing management roles at the same time. And that's how I brought the workplace mental health the business and the psychology all together. And that brought me into fabulous uh, roles, gradually more senior in various organizations, public and private, um, until four years ago when I started my own shop, my own uh, work, which I love. I loved everything I did before, but I love this right now even more. And that's it. So now I, I do a lot of uh, speaking. That's what I do most. Uh, and then advisory and coaching. And I still keep a very small uh, private practice as well as a psychologist. That's amazing. We're on very similar trajectories. I'm obviously physiology, not psych, but um, you know, similar pathways and similar career trajectories. I'd love to dig into what your thoughts are on mental health in the workplace right now. Uh, it's a very interesting time. It's uh, strange. It's different. It's challenging. Burnout is an issue. Fatigue is an issue. Uh, anxiety is an issue. So I'd love your take on, you know, from your perspective as an expert, who's actually qualified to talk about this, not just a Google expert, lo and behold, <laughs> which is why you're here. Thank you. Um, what's your take on where we're at right now with regards to mental health? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I do think that, you know, sometimes different voices in the conversations are important. And at the same time, as organizations are building, say, their mental health strategy and how it pairs with their physical and financial health strategies, you do need to, to bring what we know from research and best practices is going to make a difference. And so uh, my take, of course, it's, 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 well, not of course necessarily, but for me, it is a wonderful time uh, in that the challenges that brought us here and are still there, so acknowledging that, are have propelled us uh, in taking action in a way that nothing else could have, really. There's no amount of research convincing. Like I told you, I did my research on telehealth, and uh, that was 20 years ago. So it was established that it was efficacious, it was cost-effective, it was reaching to isolated communities, it was better using resources, like all the benefits that we're now experiencing. They were established 20 years ago, yet 
we could not have possibly created a viable implementation because it was considered pre-embryonic, bringing now my MBA language over here. So all this to say that uh, I believe that even with all the challenges that it brings, it's a fantastic, could not have invented uh, a larger opportunity for workplace mental health. And in different countries, it means different things in different organizations, different industries. And what I love is that I'm talking to people around the world in different cultures, sometimes with interpreters, sometimes working different teams together. And there are differences, just like there would be, uh, as you would expect. And then there are also similarities because we all have a human brain and the human brain functions in a similar way. And not telling you anything you don't know, but but it is part of what I'm, I'm observing. And it is um, a wonderful time to move things forward. Yeah, I think that there's many things that we can take forwards positively and obviously a lot of things that we want to make sure never happen again. And the advent of the use of positive use of technology has been quite incredible, being able to communicate with people all over the world from literally your computer, wherever that happens to be, is I think an incredible advance. Obviously, spending your entire day on Zoom is problematic, but it opportunity gives us the opportunity to do what we're doing right now, which is to communicate via video across the country to explore issues related to mental health. And so there's this upside and downside, which is just absolutely fascinating and and just you know very very interesting in our time. Let's dig into a little bit further. I want to understand burnout, just because it's a term that I've heard a lot recently. Yeah. People are tired people are have been in a state of activation for a long time now, 500 plus days into this pandemic, uh, and we're hearing the term burned out. People are saying, "I'm burned out. I'm tired. I just can't keep doing this." What what is that from your perspective? I know what. I think it is from a physiology perspective, but I'm super curious about your perspective um, as a psychologist, where where does that come from? What is going on? What are people feeling? Help us understand that a little bit better. There's a few, uh, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time. I, I think it, uh, and it's That's a great idea, question. Actually. <laughs> and it's but it is an important question because I think that we're, right, we are using, we overall, all of us at times, maybe using the word burnt out, not necessarily meaning the definition of burnout as put forward by the World Health Organization, for example. So let's maybe start there. Often when we say we're burnt out, we refer to one of the three criteria there, which is to be exhausted. We're just feeling like the tank is at close to zero and we're feeling very exhausted. That's one piece. And it is very important. And we don't need to wait until we're in, say, burnout necessarily to have this conversation. So there are and there are reasons why we get exhausted in a nutshell. Often, yeah, one of the easiest ways to think about this is the balance between supply and demand. The demands are anything that's coming our way, requiring our attention and focus, emotional, cognitive, behavioral. Um, and everyone had a lot of demands in their lives before the pandemic. Then pandemic happened. We all go down a few steps on our overall scale. And if we keep our amount of supplies, the ways we bring back energy at the same level, we're, we're going to be trending down, basically, mm. right? because we now have more demand. So at a high level, you know, if there was a one simple way or one most effective way to describe probably how it brought the number of us further down, that's, that's probably a, a key component. And then there are many other aspects, many individual variables and contacts that will contribute to uh, each person's reaction to all this. 
we can come back to this. But on the burnout side, uh, from the World Health Organization, burnout would be involving exhaustion, which is the same as over here, but also cynicism about, am I going to have any real impact here in my role? Is it even possible? And then it's impacting our performance. So the way we used to be able to contribute is going down in quality. And what we know from burnout is that it does not necessarily, even though they're listed in this order most of the time, it doesn't necessarily start from exhaustion. Sometimes it will start from other places. And sometimes we'll have two of these three criteria, not including exhaustion. Mm. So it, it builds in different ways, uh, but there are ways to, uh, to protect it, both on the individual and the organizational side. And uh, we also need to have ways to deal with it uh, when it happens, because we cannot always prevent it. I think that's so helpful to understand that context and the different aspects of it, understanding it's not just one thing. It's actually a, a potential right. combination of any one of three, all three, two of three, and any combination in there of the above. That's amazing to help me put that into context and understand it a little bit better. But I, I would like to dig into the supply and demand concept just to touch and get your take on what are some ideas that we could use to, let's say, increase the supply of our energy, reduce the demands upon us. Uh, and tip the scales a little bit more in our favor. Yeah. And, and you know, one thing I actually really love about how you asked that question is that you asked about both sides, the supply and the demand. Because sometimes in the overall resilience conversation, a lot of the focus end up, ends up being on the increasing the supply, which is, this, you know, a very important aspect, often one that we have most control over, and there's solid research backing it up. Absolutely. However, you can't always win just with the supply. There are situations where the demands are going to be impossible to match, just impossible. And that's a very important aspect. Otherwise, we can fool ourselves in, say, staying in a very unhealthy situation or keeping trying when we're really trending down and need support. So all this to say that really both aspects very important. And some of the key things I would say, looking at these both aspects, both aspects, I would actually start with the demand side so that we, for each of us personally, assess it with realism. And so sometimes I will ask uh, people, I'll say, all right, maybe start writing down your top three stressors demands at work. The three biggest things that demand your attention, create pressure, you know, three things. Okay, great. Now, add as many as you want. Keep going. So then go, go on with the list. Okay, then do the same thing on the personal side. What are the three things that tend to be on your mind? Think about it, wake up during the night, that kind of thing. And then add as many as you want. Okay, well, now we know, right? Because sometimes it's just what's top of mind or we minimize it uh, very often, especially people in who are used to being high-performing, resourceful, like competent, good, and told that they are solid rocks, whatever, resilient. Well, we're still all human. And as humans, there will be a limit. And if we don't keep an eye on the demands here, we're putting ourselves at risk. So might as well be realistic. Um, And once we have a sense of what's going on, sometimes it leads to need to make some changes about all these demands, either get help for some of them, park some until later and talk to people to find solutions. But really this amount is too much sometimes. So paying attention to the demand side and not going in thinking there's nothing I can change. These are all the demands and there's zero I can change. That's what psychologists are for sometimes to help you think through. (laughs) Is Mm -hmm. that really the case? (laughs) Yeah. And and, uh, very often, it's not like we're going to change 
80% of it. But their 80-20 rule sometimes plays out that you find 20% of this that could change and the feeling is fairly significant. So it's worth keeping an open mind about this, exploring and just going back and saying, no, no, wait a second. Do I really have to deal with all these demands all on my own? It's really interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about supply versus demand and you know, you can work harder, make more money, or you can cut your expenses. And when you cut those expenses, then working through the thought process, do I really need to spend time, effort, energy, money on these expenses? And when we first look at it, quite often you're, you think, yes, I need all of that. I need all of that. When in fact, actually, it's really, I want most of those things. And many of them are not actual needs and you don't absolutely have to have them. And by getting rid of them, it liberates it liberates you tremendously. But the pros, that thinking process that you talked about using or having someone that you can speak to, to walk through the process of what are those stressors? What are those demands? You know, what are the energy vampires, if you will, that drag you down that you can possibly deal with differently or maybe even get rid of? That's a really interesting thought process that, that you described. Am I repeating, am I understanding that correctly when I feed it back to you like that? Yes. Yes. And I would say part of what happens as we allow ourselves to revisit do I need all these demands? Do I have to keep all these demands? I said, yes. Do I have to keep saying yes to all these demands? The same way you said, you know, you can look at your budget and say, oh yeah, yeah, I do need to keep all these expenses. There's absolutely nothing I can do. If we go through the process of saying, okay, but just in case I'm going to revisit. And then we realign to your, using your analogy. Sometimes you realize, no, you didn't need to spend all this. People sometimes just don't like this idea because they're like, no, but I like to, I, yeah. I want to. And however, what most of us realize if you go through that process is that you have this opportunity to better align with your values. Mm -hmm. And once you tap into this, a whole new world opens over here. Because now some of these things, maybe they did align with your values when you said yes to them X year, years ago. Cool, great, no problem there. But we do evolve, hopefully mm -hmm. things change. And so sometimes revisiting is very important. And if you do then align better with your values, then we're entering the world of increased life satisfaction, increased happiness, and yet more energy. So that's that's this other factor that then enters. And, and then there are the additional pieces we can do in the supply front um, that will help. Let's talk about the supply front and the energy as well. I'm curious about ways of increasing our energy, increasing our happiness, and increasing that supply. Not you know, I don't want everyone to be feeling like, oh, I've always got to be reaching, doing more, you know, accomplishing more. That's not always the recipe for, for success, quote unquote, success, whatever that means for you. But I am curious about increasing energy. I'm curious about increasing that, that happiness, that joy, that positivity and, and the supply side of the equation. Yes. Yes. And, and in the current context, after an amount of time in the pandemic and, and that kind of thing, that is a question. A number of people are asking themselves. Some people have found even more clarity on that for themselves. Some of us, you know, you found moments of increase, moments of decrease. <laughs> it, it varies, right? So what I would say there is that sometimes people, it, it, and it's interesting, right? Because there are various conversations uh, happening in these, around these topics. I like to bring a combination of, it's almost like looking at, if we think about our mental health, let's just, 
use that word right now, very broad, but some people think of it as psychological health or even shades of resilience or whatever. Consider it the continuum over here where let's say this is the most optimal that we would have on this side. And then at the other side, really not on the healthy side, possibly diagnostic level where we are dealing with, say, major depression or severe anxiety or different situations like this. Some of the things that I often say are at the basis of the pyramid that are going to highly likely protect us to stay in the healthier range of of the continuum or return to it if we're sliding down will include things that I know you know, Greg, but just for today's conversation, right? The the four most powerful actions we could take, one is exercise, including cardio, strength training, and meditative type activities like yoga or meditation, good nutrition, uh, good sleep, and spending time with people we enjoy spending time with, so those relationships. The reality is that anything any one of us do that makes us feel good, assuming it's healthy, will be things I'll encourage people to keep doing, obviously. That's wonderful. However, these four strategies are established in the research. It doesn't mean that others may not be as strong or as powerful. They may just not have been researched so far. However, these four are established by decades of of research. And therefore, if I had the magic wand, I probably would ensure that uh, everyone, based on wherever we're at, increases the attention we put to these four. And if I had a second magic wand, I'd probably also Make it such that the human brain, as you know, prefers short-term gratification, which we will not, most of the time, feel immediately when we implement these four actions. So it's not like, oh, you do this one thing, and suddenly your energy is seven times better. There may be the odd, fabulous yoga experience, but, you know, going up a mountain, maybe. But other than that, no, it's not going to be immediate. And it does need to be done practically every day, for sure, every week. And so therefore, if we could really work with our brains to almost like coach ourselves, to remind ourselves that not going to be immediate benefit, brain, therefore, may prefer to do more emails or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yet, we need to put that boundary, protect it, carve that time and implement so that it makes a difference over time. Because sometimes people try to feel happier, but they're drained. They're absolutely drained. There's no amount of fabulousness over here that we'll be able to experience if we have not attended to these basics because they impact everything. Our brain functions, you know, that better than me and and, and therefore our ability to experience that joy and that happiness. I think that's super fascinating. Love the various different ideas and the approach of obviously giving yourself the ability to um, let's say just fill your buckets that you can then become happy and enjoy what's going on in your life. It's a, it's a cool, uh, mindset to adopt that can, I think probably really help people to recover, regenerate, build that spark that enables them to then lean into the things that matter to them the most. Yes. And protect from sliding down towards more, um, impact, more negative impact on our mental health. I can tell you, sometimes I've got individuals I work with that for some combination of reasons, have managed to maintain, they already had these elements in their lifestyle. That's wonderful. And they managed to maintain this even as they were going through extremely difficult times. So they end up seeing me uh, in my psychology practice, say, and they are feeling fairly low compared to where they would be. But I I tell them, and I that's where I was going to say here, is that they would feel way worse 
had they not kept this. And that's wonderful because then we're able to build back and, you know, the pain is not as significant. Others, for an, again, combination of variables, at maybe at some point had these protective factors and somehow they went off the rail. And so, yeah, it does bring them in a tougher place as it would for any of us as humans. Yeah, it's sort of defending yourself against, you have all of these practices that keep you in a place where you can, in fact, recover. And uh, it's interesting in in sports science when we are doing or assessing quote-unquote burnout in, in athletes, the general feeling uh, is that burnout is a state of overreaching where even when you rest and recover and regenerate, you're still not getting better. Your heart rate is still elevated. Your glycogen stores are still depleted. Your rest, you know, all the, the, the physio- physiological variables are still not functioning where you need them to function despite extensive rest. And it takes a long time for someone to come out. So the earlier that you can uh, address the issues, the better. And Dr. Bill Howitt, who was on this show as well, when we, he's a psychology expert, was saying that uh, when it comes to our mental health, uh, we all have these variations, yet it's when we are struggling with anxiety for a long period of time, we're struggling with depression for a long period of time, the longer that period of time goes on for, the harder it is to recover and to regenerate. So when we can address things quickly, then that's when we have the most success to try to bring ourselves back up to a, a place of, of higher functioning, of higher happiness, of better mood, all those sorts of things. Am I understanding that as, as well? I'm just checking yeah, my no, thinking was, here with you as we go through the day. I know. And I know, Bill. Um, yes, no, absolutely. I, that, that makes absolute sense. What I often add to this is that no matter how far down you went, there is going to be help. And so, mm. yeah, trying to go as little down as we can, uh, ideally, that's true. Um, and all of us at some point will, to some degree, go down over here. Um, however, no matter where you go, how far you slide, there, there is help over here and will help you come back up. But it's true that, um, you know, the, it will be true for something physical as well, right? You drag something for a long time, you keep exercising on it, it keeps getting worse. And a recovery is likely a bit longer or a lot longer sometimes than if you had caught it early. But most people, you know, you're busy or you're willing the thing not to exist. And so you keep going. Um, and um, and I think I do think that the additional conversations that we're having both related to our personal overall psychological health and the workplace mental health um, are bringing, these conversations are bringing the, the importance of being preventative higher on everyone's radar because conversations are easier, earlier, we're talking more about it. So I think all this will help not create magic. There's still always the the, the risk for all of us and there's always something to be done for sure. How do we develop better self-awareness of where we are at in terms of depression, anxiety, mood, so that we give ourselves permission to have the conversations, ask for help earlier, get the expertise, get the support. Yeah. because sometimes, as you said, we put it off. Sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we tell ourselves it's not a big deal. Sometimes we tell ourselves, oh, this is going to be fine. But how do we develop that self-awareness so that we can get to that inflection point sooner? I'm curious about your thoughts on that. You know, and, and I know a lot of your audience is the high-performing individuals who are doing very well and, and highly probably resilient and, and, and um, uh, resourceful and all these beautiful things and busy schedules. So how do you know when you need a haircut? I mean, 
mean, my daughter right? tells me actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you may have people around you, but you know, for us individually, I mean, some people pay more attention or less attention to it. Also depends if your hair is long or short, I guess. But where I'm going with this is that when we're very busy with tons of things happening around, sometimes the length of your hair is not something you're going to pay attention to as much. Yet, most high-performing people will somehow maintain a decent haircut. It's going to be fine. It's not like we end up with, you know. So it gets in the schedule. We've got a hairdresser and we're booking the hairdresser. And we know usually how long it's been and you, we, we do that. I think that particularly for high performers, you need to have your person and you need to have someone that helps you poke and check on how you're doing. Um, and it, it depends on, you know, where people are at and that kind of thing. But there almost is a point where, and I'm seeing it more and more, individuals um, just making sure, it's almost uh, sometimes on a business side will be seen as a competitive advantage. I've got my person that I'm checking in with and I can know that I'm going to be tough in my game, I'm preparing, and this is there kind of thing. So sometimes, or maybe in phases, uh, you know, of your work or your life, that may be something to consider. So you've got, this is booked, this is there, someone's going to check on me. On a personal side, could be as simple as making it a habit with people you live with, right? Asking at dinner table, let's let's check in and see. And you can do it in fun ways. What was the most fun thing today? And at some point, if people can't find anything fun ever, that could be a sign, right? Or we can do an actual check-in on feelings. You could have an emotions wheel and look at that and and let's pinpoint where we're feeling right now or where we were at mostly today. So it could be that interactions. And if you have kids and that's nice because it builds that into their own way of thinking about themselves. I know schools are doing a lot of that as well and certainly in Canada, um, but um, so that could be that on your own. You could also just choose to challenge yourself to rate on a daily basis. How have I been doing today? And it, again, busy, high-performing people needs to be simple. Zero to 10 scale. Just put a number. And usually what I say, especially to high-performing people who tend to be either fine or going to be fine or really not fine, then I say on that zero to 10 scale, you can't put zero or 10. So go find the nuances so you can allow yourself to see it. Otherwise, you'll see a series of 10 until you see a zero. Not good. Right? You're also you not allowed that. to choose seven because seven is so waffly. Like you gotta be <laughs> You're seven's the rules. worst. Because it's like it's fine, <laughs> right? But it's either a six or an eight, right? If you force yourself, and I learned that just from the Tim Ferriss show. But anyway, that was another, that's another challenge. When I asked, when I talked to Judith, I'm like, how you know, how are you doing? Or how do you feel about this? What are your thoughts on that? And she's like, it's a seven. I'm like, no, okay, you have to choose an eight or a six. What is it? It's like, it's a six. Like, we're not doing it. So that's that's interesting. But I like also the idea of never giving not zero and 10 are not options. We have to find the nuances. That's curious. That's interesting. Yeah. And it protects people from just doing a quick rating. Oh yeah, I'm fine. Moving on or I'm not fine. Moving on. No, no, let's, let's just take 10 seconds. It's not going to be that long, but let's breathe and see how we're feeling. How do you feel, or what's your take on the better understanding in culture of mental health, the greater acceptance of having discussions around mental health. I used to joke that, you know, when you break an arm, you have a cast and everyone's like, how's your, how's your arm? How's, you know, can I sign your cast? 
And there's no stigma associated with that. Yet when you have depression or you know someone who has depression, there's still much less than there used to be, but a stigma associated with mental health. It's, it's an invisible epidemic, if you will. And yet shows like the very popular Ted Lasso show on, on Apple TVs and a number of different shows are doing this too, but is addressing the issues around mental health and the, the lead character Ted Lasso has a panic attack. He's a coach for a soccer team on television. And these are, these, these topics are now becoming much more common in media, in entertainment, in the conversation, in sports. Carrie Price recently for the Montreal Canadiens took a break to address his own mental health. You know, kudos to him for for doing that and being a, a, a yet another kind of leader. Uh, so I'm just curious about your thoughts on how culture is changing and what we can do maybe to keep this positive shift going and keep the conversation opening up around these issues. I think that one of the useful next steps will be to get more specific about what we're talking about so that we are talking about depression, we are talking about eating disorders, we are talking about substance abuse, we, all these, um, anxiety disorders, all that. Um, because right at this point, it's almost like we've been saying the importance of physical health, physical mm -hmm. health is so important. Let's talk about physical health. You know, there's so many angles, so many aspects, they're not all the same, sure, you know, there are general high level guidelines that are probably good for most aspects of our physical health, but there are some things that are specific to your muscles. There are specific things that will be specific to other parts of your body. And so um, we, I think, and again, it will depend on different conversations, different countries, different organizations, different teams, even sometimes within the organization. And the more we can move towards more specific conversations, I do think it's going to help uh, because part of the stigma is not knowing, not having enough information, then it's scary, and then we're making assumptions, negative ones, and it's problematic. As we dive into the specifics, then, okay, now we, we can understand this better. Okay, so this type of uh, challenge tends to happen more to people around this age, start around this age. Okay, we'll pay attention to these kinds of things. And these other types could be situational or could be chronic. It's chronic, it's highly linked to what your brain chemistry is like versus a situational aspect. So there's lots of mm, specifics that I think as we dive into them, it's going to dive, see? Um, it's going to make, make it a bit easier to understand numbers, facts, actions to take, take them, and if it looks like something is problematic, go see the, the person we need to see, an expert perhaps to, to help us deal with it and continue to live, continue to work, continue to do what, what's part of our lives that makes sense. I love doing this show so much, mainly because every person I speak to brings knowledge, wisdom, and a new perspective. And that's a very cool perspective, Frank, I've never thought of before about next steps when it comes to mental health is not simply thinking of it in terms of mental health, but breaking it down into its components, depression, anxiety, mood disorders, eating disorders, as you said, and the analogy, and I, I, I work by analogies in my brain. It's like type one diabetes is different than cancer, then it's different than cardiovascular disease. And you go see different experts for each one of those and physical activity helps, but in different ways. 
and we can continue. In fact, you're, it's hopeful that you do continue to work through uh, those times and that you spend time with family and friends and that they understand what you're going through. And you take insulin, for example, if you're a type one diabetic and that's the pathway doesn't mean that there's not different pathways that there's maybe a better way of doing it in the future, but that is a very cool approach and something that we can work towards in the future to reduce the stigma because we understand it better. There's less mystery. There's less misconceived notions about how these play out for people. It's really, really cool. That's a really interesting approach. Yeah. And I think it's it's doable. I mean, number one, because we have a lot of disinformation we've had for decades and, and certainly from the field of psychology. And now what we have, again, context of pandemic brought this forward. And, and that is one positive from it is that there is way more knowledge today than say even one year ago. And in more than two years ago, the, the, the amount of general knowledge in general public about uh, mental health, how to protect it, the kinds of things that would make a difference is significantly higher now than two years ago, pre-pandemic. So I think it set the stage for us to be ready to uh, get even better with this. Love it. Let's get super practical and okay. sort of throw some ideas around. Let's get like nuts and bolts, you know, wheel, like rubber hitting the road, whatever analogy you want to throw up there, <laughs> metaphor. Let's talk about just general prevention for or improvement of mental health, getting our brains yeah. functioning at a, at a high level, staying he healthy, happy. What are some things that you do? What are some things that we can think about as just practices that we can implement in our day to take care of ourselves? Yes. So I'm going to start back to those four behavioral strategies. These are, there's no way around. You cannot say, oh, I'm going to do this instead because I, I love it. Keep doing what you're doing instead that you love that's healthy. And add these four. Just no way of going around it. The size of the impact is so large. We, right, just to give an idea. Sometimes people say, yeah, yeah, nutrition. No, wait a second. Good nutrition decreases your risk of depression by, it depends on studies, but between 30 and 60%. Okay, so, right, depression could come from genetic problems, could come from situations, could come from all kinds of places, yet this is in our hands, right? So, yeah, so anyway, these four, I would say they should be in. There's just not going around this. Then I think um, um, it's in addition. So we're going up in the pyramid. You cannot do that instead, uh, just to be clear. Then I would be looking at... at revisiting back to our point of earlier, your values, like what's most important for you in life so that you can then see if you're, how much your life is currently aligned with these values and then seek ways to align your life even better with them. Cause why not? <laughs> and it will contribute to just enjoyment. And, and that is very important. The other um, key angle to watch for is the way we think. Obviously, I know you know that, but but as busy, you know, highly competent professionals and, and all this, often people will assume that their brain is fantastic and that they don't necessarily need to actively do anything to feed it, protect it, support it, rein it in, <laughs> you know, all these things. It is fantastic highly likely true. Um, however, we still need to, to uh, manage it. And I do think that this is something we'll see even more research on in the next few years. We already have a lot of research, as I know you know, on ways to, the, the ways in which our brains 
sort of go in unhelpful directions uh, when we're, say, dealing with lower mood or high anxiety, things like that, right? And in a nutshell, part of what happens is our brain's going into negative uh, type thinking patterns. And not only they're negative, but they're actually way worse than they need to be. They are negative biased, out of this world biased. However, whether these thoughts are very biased or a little bit biased, in our mind, brain interprets them as this is it. And therefore, we feel in a way that's aligned with these thoughts, which at times means terrible, and it's going to impact our behavior. So we already have tons of research. That's what the best treatments are based on. Say cognitive behavior therapy is, is one, and there are some others that have looked at the ways in which our brain will benefit from being managed. What I often say is, yeah, well, let's not use these strategies only when we're dealing with severe depression and severe anxiety. Let's use them now. Number one is going to protect us from sliding at times. Not always, but it can. And number two, it may actually almost serve as a buffer, like bring us even higher up in our levels of life satisfaction, happiness, but also performance, right? And so managing that um, aspect of the brain, very important. And it, I mean, there are, uh, we, it could be a longer conversation, but in a nutshell, I often say is to pay attention to where your thoughts tend to go when you're in tough situations and challenge yourself and ask yourself, am I 100% sure of this, that thought that came? For example, this is never going to work. And yeah, that, love that forces us, right? It just forces a realistic perspective, which then we know not only it's sure, great. Any business person would say, you know, realistic perspective better. Yes. However, it goes beyond this, as you know, as well. When we're broadening to a more realistic perspective, what we're doing with our brain is we're basically calming down the alarm center that's all revved up when it sees a, um, a demand, which it, it perceives as a, as a threat. If we give it a broader perspective, that calms down, which then allows all the parts of our brains to function better on their own and with each other, which we need for problem solving. So there are, you know, you know this, but it's it's so. Um, Assume I know I nothing, by the way. I'm I'm in constant learn mode as we speak, so make no assumptions about what I actually know <laughs> as we move through all this stuff. I just want to learn massively. So, yeah, yeah. sorry to interrupt. No, no, that that um, it is. I think very exciting, and it is. Um, I think something that we'll see more and more come out in the next uh, few years in ways that people can apply in their lives, right? And so, for right now, I would say, from a practical perspective, do watch for what's going on in your head. Do correct it, even if you don't speak it. How you talk to yourself, the thoughts coming in your head. Don't let stuff just land there and stay like this. You can rewrite, you can reorganize, you can challenge. And, and at times we need to challenge it and not just accept the thought as is. A thought is just a thought. Yeah, I love that. Challenge your thinking, double check your thinking, confirm your thinking, be very careful about your biases, what you believe to be true. All those sorts of things I think are are super helpful to ensure that the way that you're approaching things is the best way to approach it at, at any given moment. And again, that things might change in the future. I really like that. Marie-Hélène, I know that your um, time is precious, so I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. How can people learn more about what you're up to and connect with you online? 
Oh, well, thanks. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, probably best, easiest, fastest way is um, my website, uh, which is dr like doctor, mh like Marie Hedden, and then my last name, p like Peter, e l l e t like Tom, i e r dot com. Or if you want uh, to connect on LinkedIn, always a pleasure there as well. Amazing. Marie Hedden, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate it. It's uh, really helpful to put so many of these ideas into context and get some expert uh, advice on how to improve our mental health. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Greg. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that, everyone. Mental health is such a huge topic. It's of such massive importance, and it's critical that we get professional guidance and understanding on it because there's so much misinformation out there and misunderstandings out there as well. So when you get people like Dr. Maria Lennon to be able to speak to you, it's just absolute gold for us in our lives. So if that was helpful, or if you know someone that could benefit from listening to that conversation, please share it with them. I'd greatly appreciate that. Give us a review on iTunes if you have not done so already and make sure that you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and everyone stay healthy and safe and we'll talk to you again soon.